Hi, and welcome to the inoculation. My name is Eva von Schaper, and today we're going to talk about disinformation in audio spaces, both on social audio and in podcasts. Hi, I'm Daivara Pachkaite. Welcome to the show. We started working on this episode late last year, but it's really timely. The day we recorded this episode, the musician Neil Young said he was removing his songs from the music streaming service Spotify. And by the way, if you haven't followed the story, I'm dropping a link in the show notes. So yeah, podcasts. Well, yes, he threatened to remove it in protest to the streaming service hosting Joe Rogan's podcast, which has contained anti-vaccine disinformation. Spotify, which has a $100 million deal with Rogan, refused, citing their content removal policy. Wow, so there is disinformation in podcasts. But what about social audio? What is it exactly? Well, for example, we know that social media in general are websites and apps that focus on communication, uh, community-based uh, input, interaction, content sharing, collaboration. So like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Right, those are the big ones. And social audio is social media based on audio content. So some of the biggest names are Clubhouse, Discord, and Twitter Spaces. So basically, these are these are apps that will allow you to talk to people that you might not even know and talk to groups of people that you might not know in person. And why are they a big deal right now? Well, in general, there are a couple of factors that contribute to the rise of social audio. We've seen an explosion of smart speakers. Um, and I think after two years of Zoom meetings, we're tired of Zoom meetings and we're tired of having to be present all the time. Um, and social audio offers the privacy. Video meetings don't, but it does let us connect in a more human way than text messages, for example. So it's like they're trying to recreate that cozy midnight radio call-in feeling, right? What is so bad about connection? Well, like other social media we've seen, um, social audio is also a space that's rife with disinformation. And what's worse, it's disinformation that's harder to keep track of than disinformation that we find on traditional social media, such as Facebook or Instagram. Why? Well, it's a lot harder to monitor audio just because, for example, it's a lot harder to search for keywords linked to disinformation. And sometimes um, these spaces aren't recorded, so they just disappear. So what about podcasts? They are recorded. How do they fit in? Well, podcasts, which for a lot of people look like traditional media, look like radio, um, they're a prime conduit for disinformation, according to one researcher I spoke to. They seem to be largely missing from the debate about disinformation. And we'll hear from her later. You know, some people I follow on social media are actually gravitating to audio and they keep posting calls to join them in, on this platform or that. There are so many of them. How big are all of these? Well, it's quite hard to say. So Clubhouse, which started last year, had 10 million downloads in February of last year. And the number has gone up and down. But it's not really clear how many active listeners it currently have. So, for example, I downloaded the app, but I don't use it much. And Twitter has not really released listener numbers, but the site itself has close to 200 million active users. But it's not only this number that makes it potentially more dangerous to spreading disinformation. Why is that? Why would one platform be more dangerous? 
Well, to find out, I talked to W.F. Thomas, who's a researcher at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Twitter actually unrolled or started kind of beta testing the feature uh, in I believe it was December of 2020. So it's been around for a while, but that was in kind of this intermittent phase of rolling it out. And so not, not all users had it. I first noticed that this was an issue right around um, just before Thanksgiving, so uh, towards the end of November, um, <clears throat> which is when Twitter rolled this feature out to a much larger degree and unrolled it out to nearly every user. Um, and the other thing they did was they, they made a design feature uh, in updating the app on this mobile app for smartphones, where they made a specific tab for spaces uh, that put it right in the middle next to the search button. Or sorry, in between the search and the notifications button. And they made the button for spaces bigger than all the other ones. Um, so really driving users to use spaces. Uh, and they, they additionally, uh, create a design feature that is, that is opt out, but that where someone is a listener or is a speaker in one of these spaces, it will appear at the top of their followers' feeds. And during his research, Thomas saw how Twitter spaces could unfold. The first time I realized this was going to be a problem um, it was actually, I'm a misinformation research, researcher and I follow a lot of other misinformation researchers on Twitter. But there was there was uh, a German language Twitter space, um, which you probably know the one that I'm thinking of that, that you know, uh, involves talking with Nazis or breaking out of a bubble and talking with Nazis. You know, Whether that was tongue in cheek or not, you know, I looked at, some of the people talking, and they were, you know, self-described white nationalists, right, uh, who were speaking, uh, and that was really alarming for me. And that was, that was, you know, I think Germans took to Twitter Spaces a bit more than U.S. Americans did. You know, there's there's been this false, what I view as a false idea, where oh, we just need to talk with these people holding these extremists or these very um, out there and harmful beliefs, and and that will bridge the gap. Which you know these these actors who hold these extremist beliefs who spread disinformation who spread misinformation they rely on that they rely on presenting things as a debate when they have no clear intention to debate anyone who disagrees with them um, but it it gives them this platform it gives them this false equivalency or this completely ridiculous belief uh, this completely ridiculous opinion deserves to be treated as equal and deserves to be talked with right so. Looping back around, right? Um, uh, why is this an issue, right? When these when these things are popping up, people in general love to look at terrible things happening. You know, there's the cars will stop and drive by when there's an auto accident, for example. Uh, everyone wants to go see something bad that happened. Okay, so how do we know that this information is actively being pushed, or it's actively being pushed to the top of feeds? The algorithm favors this outrage content, right? As we were talking about before. Um, so it's not, you know, someone at Twitter is pushing a button and says, let me send out this extremist content. But you know, the, the way the algorithm is based, it, it's based on engagement, right? Come to think of it, Twitter still hasn't introduced an option to report false claims as such. But does he think Twitter spaces are more dangerous than Clubhouse? Well, let's listen in to what he told me. Yeah, so with Clubhouse, um, which, was, which was a similar app for this audio rooms, uh, Clubhouse was this invite-only app, which kind of presented itself as being this very exclusive kind of, I think of it as being very exclusive, high-class thing, um, or at least that's what they were going for, right? Um, Twitter always already has this, you know, 
massive X number of users on it uh, who are all getting pushed in with those spaces as well. So you have all these people just colliding with each other in the spaces, right? Um, and that's one of the things I noticed, right, where you, you would have, you know, one of the huge spaces that really alarmed me um, was a, a spaces run by a bunch of people who, who have, you know, Pepe the Frog as or drawings of Pepe as their picture, which is this this ironic comic figure in the far right. And then I asked them if there has been any advance in moderating these spaces. The only feasible way that I can think of, I'm not super familiar with all the technology, right, uh, is having manpower, human power to listen to these spaces, right? And to say, you know, I have no idea what Twitter's moderation looks like. If it, you know, someone reports a space, does it suddenly pop up for a human person to go and listen to it and say, mm, I don't think this violates the terms of service, right? Which, which also seems very arbitrary to me as well. Um, until the technology gets there, that's, that's the only feasible way. Right. According to the Washington Post, Twitter, like Facebook and YouTube, has built extensive tools in recent years to spot slurs, deepfakes, bots, and disinformation networks. And the company also has moderators that read posts and enforce rules. But it does not have the same kind of moderation in Twitter spaces yet. So, okay, social audio has a problem. But what about podcasts? They have been around for so much longer, so tools to control this information on them should be much better, or am I wrong? What did you learn about disinformation in podcasts? I talked to Valerie Wirtschafter, who's a senior data analyst in the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technologies Initiative at the Brookings Institution. And the thing about podcasts is that they're not really viewed in the same threat category as other social audio. And it's, you know, the podcasting space has been seen as less of a problem with respect to the spread of information because it's more difficult for content from a podcast to travel rapidly across the information ecosystem and go viral. What do you mean? Well, basically that sharing or commenting on podcasts is a lot harder, if not impossible. But what Wordtrafter told me was that this might not really be the right way to view podcasts because, you know, they're building an intimate relationship between the podcaster and their audience. And it might mean that their audience may be more likely to believe untruths. Like when they listen to a podcast while jogging and they won't stop and fact check something suspicious, right? And what else? Well, I think one other thing that Wartrafter told me, and I think this is very interesting, is that podcasts may seem to be too elite to be used as vehicles for disinformation. So shows such as Serial or This American Life are seen as something that appeal to only a small slice of the population. But, you know, the reality is that podcast ad revenue is expected to hit $1 billion this year. Um, and I think there are over 2 million shows that are available. Oh, and did Valerie Verchafter tell you how she came to research podcasts? Yeah, she did. And it's quite interesting because um, I think there's not a lot of other people working in this space. And here's what she told me. I think I saw a tweet. Somebody was talking about Joe Rogan, obviously. Um, and I was like, holy cow, this is like the worst possible storm in terms of places where 
misinformation, disinformation, whatever intent you want to assign to it, wherever, where it could spread. Um, and so that really got me down the rabbit hole of one, figuring out the audio question and two, um, trying to really map this space that is so rife for the sharing of false content, but so unchecked and so off the radar. Um, and that's really, I think, where it began. Wirtschafter used data-driven research methods to see how much disinformation could be found in podcasts, um, at first looking at 8,000 episodes of popular political podcasts. Here's a bit more of what she told me. And I've since expanded that to 25,000 episodes. Um, and so the main analysis, which is still a work in progress, but um, hopefully we're we're going to be moving pretty quick on it, is a 25,000 episode uh, assessment. And so part of that comes from captions. So if a podcast put their episodes simultaneously on YouTube, because a lot of podcasts, not a lot, but some podcasters will make playlists of their series on YouTube, we're able to grab those captions through YouTube, which is nice because it's free. Um, and then when they don't do that, that involves, um, you know, downloading the MP3 files from their RSS feeds. So basically a scraper to um, crawl every RSS feed in our list and then um, using effectively like speech to text methods to auto transcribe. She told me that the false content spans a wide range of topics in U.S. politics, immigration, elections, abortion, just a whole wide range. And to make sure she found all of it, she developed a couple of strategies. There's a few strategies. Um, so in the sort of Texas data space, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to read 25,000 transcripts either. I think that I would be... I don't know, 75 years old by the time I finish that. Um, but, you know, so there's a few strategies that I've been employing. Um, one of them is to just create a simple kind of dictionary um, tied to whatever false content I'd be looking at at the time. So, you know, if it's vaccine misinformation, it's looking at terms like throwing in and things like pandemic or um, lab leak or something like that. And then detecting in the transcripts or which transcripts from that um, larger corpus of 25,000 episodes use these terms or bring this content into their audio files. And then once I get a match in that approach, I'll actually then manually go in and review the area. So not the full transcript per se, but the, you know, minute or two before, minute or two after, um, where they're using that word that triggered a match. And then if it's a false positive, I remove it. And if it's a real positive, um, then it stays. So that's one okay. approach with kind of known lies, known terms, known things that might be um, very commonly shared across, you know, where this type of information is being spread. And then the other approach is sort of more of an agnostic approach in the sense that, like, I am not determining the words that go in. I'm relying on external fact checkers. So right now I've been using PolitiFact and Snopes. Um, and what's nice about those two fact checkers is that they actually provide 
sort of the fragment of phrase or the information that was actually being shared at that time. So it's not just the fact check, it's actually the content that was being fact checked. And so I run what's effectively kind of a very massive matrix um, that identifies the parts of every transcript where um, that false piece of content is the closest. So looking at sort of the similarity of sentences, um, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the same as the fact-checked episode, but similar, using similar words, um, you know, and, and what that algorithm does is effectively just allows for some some error, some change, whether that's error from the transcription process or different ways of phrasing things potentially. And so that also, again, after that process occurs, um, I go back and I manually review any of the matches that meet a certain threshold for similarity. Why hasn't anybody looked into this? Well, I asked Valerie Wirtschafter the same thing. Here's what she told me. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a great question and one that I'm still trying to figure out, like why why this project appears to be, at least, at least to my understanding, um, sort of the first, if not one of the first, to actually systematically explore this. I mean, I think as sort of someone with an academic background, you expect every great idea, uh, somebody's already had that great idea and explored it in some way. So how can you make changes around the edges? But I'm still baffled a little bit that nobody's kind of looked at this podcasting space seriously. My sense is, is that, you know, one, it's a methodological challenge. Um, the tools haven't been in sort of the mainstream of research for that long. And so, you know, getting the auto, like the sort of auto transcribing, getting that to be precise enough to be able to use it has sort of, um, I think, sharpened quite a bit. Um, some of the more complicated Texas data questions have become more prominent. And so um, I think it's just the right time in terms of the research methods. You know, I think they're part of the challenge also is I think there's just sort of a fundamental disconnect in how podcasts are listened to or who's listening to podcasts. Among my friends um, and the people sort of in the academic space, it's the serials, it's This American Life, it's Radio Lab, it's things like that. Um, but the space is so much larger because it does, you know, it's sort of like a blog or something or a social media platform where anybody can really sign up and become the expert to their audience. Right. But, you know, it's not that similar because people can't really talk back. And yes. so it's this um, sort of hybrid new media, old media medium that makes it a bit challenging and I think potentially misunderstood in that respect. So I think, you know, there's a ton of reasons all that probably yeah. compounded. Oh, that sounds like it was a huge undertaking. Yes, and I think it really was. And she made a couple of really good points about why podcasts might be more dangerous in spreading disinformation than big platforms like Facebook, for example. You know, I think that, yes, it's less shareable in some respects, but you know, the part of the problem with a Facebook or a Twitter is there's just this sense of like information overload. 
And so what is the meaning in any specific signal, in any specific tweet, in any specific Facebook post? It's unclear how much that moves the needle for any one person. But the podcaster-listener relationship in a lot of these episodes is very intimate. And there's just a high degree of trust that gets built up over time. And, you know, I think that's a super interesting area for more research to be done. And I would strongly advocate for it because it is such a sort of unique dynamic. But, you know, there is a question of are untruths shared in podcasts more meaningful potentially? And so do they carry more weight than just your average tweet that is one of a thousand tweets or a million tweets? Uh, and so that, that I think is a, an interesting discussion to be had and, you know, something that might give more weight to podcasts as a, a real challenge in this space. And I should also add, you know, that podcasts have a huge audience in their own right. I'm not looking at sort of smaller players. I'm looking at people with millions of Twitter followers. Um, and so if they have an episode, they probably tweet about that episode. They probably share it on Facebook things like that. There is that element as well. But, you know, in terms of sort of the way that podcasting is laid out, it it does represent a really huge challenge in terms of this sort of moderation space, because there isn't really one central authority. There's not a, a specific platform that's, you know, whatever responsibility they argue they have that is at least in some way marginally responsible for the content. You could argue various ways, you know, Spotify's approach is very different from Apple's approach to the way that it handles podcasts. And Spotify might be a a little bit more of a platform in that regard because they directly host the episode. Um, And so that is a huge challenge that I think will need to be rethought in a lot of ways. That's surely a lot for tech companies to think about. It sure is. That's it for today. As always, you can find the transcripts on our website, www.theinoculation.com. This episode was supported by a Heinrich Böll Foundation grant. You can subscribe to our newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform of your choice. Follow us on Facebook at The Inoculation, on Twitter at T Inoculation, and on Instagram as The underscore Inoculation. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye for now. Bye. See you in two weeks.